I think is really important to understand that there can very much be a dark flip side to narratives about um, helping women recover and deal with their trauma um, by forcing them under penalty of going to prison into these kinds of treatment programs. Conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm Skylar Dom, and in this episode, I'm talking to Allison McKim about the intersection of gender, punishment, and social control. Specifically, we're talking about her new book, Addicted to Rehab, Race, Gender, and Drugs in the Era of Mass Incarceration. I found this conversation really interesting for a number of reasons. One, oftentimes women are overlooked as people involved in the system. Two, drug courts and diversion programs are increasingly popular among criminal justice reformers, and this complicates that narrative. And three, this book offers us a great entree to talk about the way that gender, race, and class affect the way that women are punished and controlled in the criminal legal system. So here's our conversation. I'm curious, and, and we'll, we'll zoom in on, um, on rehab in a sec, but women are the fastest growing population in prisons right now. Um, And I wonder if you think that there's anything driving this I don't really know for sure the answer to that, you know, based on data. And since I'm a sociologist, I feel like I need to be cautious about Mm -hmm. making conclusions on that. But I think we do have some pretty good theories out there as to why this is. One primary reason for this is... um, people have argued that it has to do with the focus on drug crimes, particularly lower level drug crimes. And women are um, more likely to be involved at sort of lower levels of drug dealing um, because there's a glass ceiling in crime, much like there is in the corporate world. And so uh, women, if you if you increase enforcement against lower level people involved in selling uh, drugs or transporting drugs, you'll pick up more women than if you go for the kind of the big dogs. And so one reason might be just the war on drugs. Another thing um, has has to do with the women's ability to get reduced sentences by pleading and giving information to law enforcement officials. And so um, if women do not actually have access to the um, upper levels above them in criminal organizations, then they actually can, can't plea bargain as effectively. They tend to not know people above them. They tend to have, you know, less, less knowledge or contact with, um, important people. So there some people have speculated that women also fare worse, um, in getting their sentences reduced through that kind of cooperation. Interesting. You'd think that, um, they would have sort of an intimacy or an access to to folks that police might want to target, but I guess it's not the right it's not the right people that police want to target. Yes, I think that's that's correct. Um, yeah, and and I mean, there's lots of stories of women who end up with like huge serving huge sentences mm-hmm. um, for doing things like having their apartment be the place that drugs were stored, even though they themselves weren't particularly involved in dealing or anything like that. They they just happened to have the housing in which and and permitted drugs to be stored there, and mm-hmm. so then they get caught with you know whatever it is like. 20 kilos of something and, and they go down for a lot of time because of that. Um, and so, 
you know, there, there, there are ways in which women get attached to sort of drug enterprises that I think can make them especially vulnerable is what is mostly what people have argued about that. So turning now to your book, uh, because your book deals less with women who are accused of dealing drugs and more with, um, with women who are charged with, with struggling with addiction. And I'm wondering how you went about studying the treatment of women with addiction in the criminal legal system. So I began by studying a program that I give the pseudonym uh, Women's Treatment Services, so WTS for short. Um, while I was in a doctoral student at NYU and was interested in looking at how the criminal legal system understands, conceptualizes, constructs women, what's wrong with them, why they become, you know, criminals, so to speak. Um, basically the sort of narratives and ideologies of the system as to what was wrong with women and what would, would be required to, to make them kind of normal or, um, to have them sort of be readmitted to citizenship. And so I was looking for a place where you could kind of see this happening. And, uh, and it was this program, which takes mandated clients from the criminal justice system, um, was a good place to do that. And part of what got me interested in this question was that I had read a lot from um, black feminist authors about how narratives about women who use drugs, who are African-American, um, played an important role in the increasing punitiveness of the criminal justice system over the course of the eight, you know, 80s and 90s. Uh, so stereotypes about women who used crack, um, the panic over crack babies, and um, the very nasty racist and sexist rhetoric uh, about women in that era. And I thought, you know, how do we know the way that this is actually implicating treatment of women in the system? And I wanted to find a place where I could sort of see how that was playing out. And that's what led me to study a treatment program. And eventually I decided I needed to do a comparison to a treatment program that wasn't part of the criminal justice system um, because I, I, it occurred to me how as I was spending time at WTS and watching their practices um, and on trying to learn sort of their beliefs about how um, women come to get in trouble with the law and come to get involved with drugs – that I, I needed to have a comparison to a, a drug rehab that was not part of the criminal justice system to understand how much of this was about the way we understand women who use drugs and how much of this was about the practice of punishment and being part of the criminal legal system. So let's start then with, I think the other um, treatment facility you went to was called Gladstone Lodge, or that's what it's called in your book, at least. Yeah, um, I use pseudonyms for for the places and the people in it. Um, so let's start there, because you know, sort of ultimately, we'll end up um, at, at WTS, where we're talking about punishment and the criminal system's intersection with it. So can you just describe Gladstone Lodge? Right. So Gladstone Lodge is probably the kind of place that a lot of people think of when they think of rehab. It's uh, a residential addiction treatment program that um, is based on 12-step model. It's a really kind of classic old school rehab. And um, it's been around for a while. It's in a rural area in the Northeast. And um, 
And so it's when, you know, you have this image of like people going away to rehab. Um, it's the sort of place that's been doing that for a while. It's not an especially fancy place though. Like it's not the kind of, you know, rehab that Lindsay Lohan goes to or something <laughs> like the, there's a lot of really fancy rehabs in Malibu where you can spend like $30,000 a month mm-hmm. and, and that kind of, so this is not that sort of place. It's, it's, it's a very modest rehab, um, that costs when I was doing research there, uh, about $9,000 a month. It's gone up a little bit since, um, since I did my research in 2009, but, um, but that makes it a, a quite an affordable rehab. Um, it's most of the people who go there pay with health insurance, uh, private health insurance. Some people pay, um, cash basically, or they're, you know, self pay with their own money. And, uh, Gladstone Lodge doesn't take any other uh, public subsidies for treatment. So you, it won't accept Medicaid insurance. Um, it won't take fe- you know, federal or state grants to support treatment. It doesn't have contracts with the criminal justice system to get clients. So it's really a kind of pr- what we would, what people in the, in the industry would call private pay rehab, meaning it, the only ways to pay are with private rather than public money. Um, but what, so before we get to, to WTS, what are the sort of basic demographics of the folks at Gladstone Lodge? So you said they're generally working class and they're predominantly white? Um, I think it's a, around 70% white. Um, and the, the remainder are um, African-American and Latina women. Okay. I would say they're mostly, I don't know, I would say working class and middle class because there's enough private paid um, people who come there who s- struck me based on either their occupations or their husband's occupations or their education level um, that you could roughly consider them middle class. Okay. And compare that to women's treatment services. Who's, who's generally there? So women's treatment services was predominantly African-American and there's about five to 10% white women and, um, 20%, uh, Latina women and the remainder were African-American. And those women were mostly very low income. The reason why you get that class and race difference in the population is because of how the two programs get their clients. So WTS gets its clients from the criminal justice system, uh, whereas Gladstone Lodge has this mishmash of, of sort of self-admitted um, health insurance paid and then um, union and employer referrals. And so when you say that they get their clients from the criminal system, uh, how exactly does that happen? Uh, I know I said earlier that people are charged with being addicted to, you know, X, Y, and Z, but obviously you can't actually, that's not a crime, right? Addiction not. is not a crime. So how does someone go from the criminal system to a court ordered rehab? There are several ways this could happen. Uh, so one would be that a woman is paroled from prison. So she served her sentence and is being released under some kind of supervision from parole. And they can require that a woman go to treatment, um, once she's released into the community at a, at a place like WTS, which is a residential. So it gives her a place to live and, um, a parole officer might require this if they think the woman has um, an addiction problem, but they might also uh, do it if she was just involved in drugs um, at all, um, but n- they thought she might need some stability and social services, which were also present at WTS. So a lot of parole officers um, required their clients to go to WTS in part 
so that they could get the sorts of social services, housing assistance, GED prep, um, and other kind of ancillary services that WTS offered in addition to the sort of drug treatment itself. Another route that people could end up in that program would be um, if a woman was arrested and diverted to a drug court. So basically these are set up to try to deal with um, a common problem of the sort of revolving door uh, in which drug-involved individuals will come into the criminal legal system and then get out and come back in and get out. And so the idea was that you could force people into treatment um, and on penalty of going to jail um, and kind of hold jail over their heads as a threat so that um, people would c- complete treatment. And that's what drug courts do. And and did you, sorry, did you say there was a third way that, that people get there or did I make that up? There is a um, another way, which is the uh, child welfare system. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of women who ended up at WTS and some women actually who ended up at Gladstone Lodge, both were pressed into treatment through um, having child protective services take their children and require them to complete treatment and if they wanted to retain custody of their children. Is there someone you met at um, WTS while you were doing research, whose experience you think is particularly emblematic of the experience of women who go through the program or the treatment philosophy of WCS? There are quite a few uh, cases. So uh, I'll I'll start with with Christine, who was um, a black woman in her her twenties. Um, she came from the drug court route and, um, I met her because I was observing, um, on a regular basis, the parenting class that WTS ran and, um, and she had, um, kids and, and was sort of encouraged to do this, uh, parenting class by the program, um, and by the drug court. So, um, that's how I got to know her because it was kind of an intimate therapeutic group, which was, um, not just about, you know, parenting strategies, but also, um, a very, um, therapeutically oriented parenting class in which women spent a lot of time talking about their guilt and shame, um, for how they had messed up as mothers. And this gives you some insight into WTS. Um, at one point, we were sitting around before class started, um, and Christine told the you know the women who were sort of waiting for the class to begin that she had gotten a job, which she was very excited about. And officially, uh, WTS's goals include um, preparing women for employment, and drug courts often require people to get jobs. Um, and this was something that Christine actually was really into doing. And then the the next week, I return to to the program. And, um, Christine tells us that, um, WTS made her quit her job. Uh, and the reason they gave her was that she, she, her hours were too long. Um, and so she wasn't getting any treatment as they said. Um, and this reveals something really important about WTS's orientation, um, to what they thought the women who, uh, were forced into that rehab need, you know, needed. And that was that they primarily needed to engage in this sort of deep work on the self to learn about their feelings, to dig into their past traumas, to confess those sort of deep, dark parts of themselves, uh, to the counselors in the program. And they thought that that was actually the really the most important thing for the women and, um, would in fact discourage women like Christine, from 
taking and keeping jobs. And that was um, endemic across the whole program in which the staff at WTS and then the, the sort of criminal legal agencies around, around that program had a lot of say over what women needed and women didn't actually have a lot of say themselves over what they thought they needed. So, yeah, that last point, I think you sort of hit the, um, hit one of the cruxes of the problem, I guess, is that if you're not listening to what, if you're not empowering someone to feel like they are taking control of their life and, and, and putting it together, they the way they want, then what are you doing? But one of the things I thought was so interesting about your book is that it's it's so complex, right? On the one hand, you would think that if you were going to be buying into sort of racist stereotypes about women of color, you would be encouraging them to get a job, right? Like that's sort of the welfare, you know, 90s welfare reform attitude that's, you know, that portrays poor people, people of color as sort of lazy and they need to be encouraged to work. Um, and so it's, it's butting up against that. And it's also buying into what on the surface sounds like a good thing, right? It's like what they say to you every time you go to a yoga class, which is you should be taking (laughs) care of yourself, focusing on you. And yet there's kind of a dark underbelly to this that you, um, that you unearth. So what's the, what's the problem with this? What's the, what's the dark flip side? Yes, this is something that's that um, I think is really important to understand that there can very much be a dark flip side to um, thing like narratives about um, helping women recover and deal with their trauma um, by forcing them under penalty of going to prison into these kinds of treatment programs. So I guess one piece of it would be what I had already just suggested with Christine, that she didn't actually have a the autonomy to make decisions about her life. Um, And we see this a lot. So the ones that really startle people are the examples about uh, WTS basically forcing women not to work. Um, For them, treatment was just this like therapeutic delving into the self, and it didn't involve um, things that the program also did, but obviously felt very ambivalent about, like helping women get jobs, helping women with housing, offering family counseling, remedial education, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so although the state funded them to pr- provide these services, um, they were deeply committed to a belief that what women's problems were inside themselves. And this is a one important dark side of the sort of therapeutic and trauma rhetoric um, that that can sound so good sometimes, um, is that the, what they really are assuming is that the reason these women are poor or have had abusive boyfriends or have no work histories or dropped out of school or got pregnant when they were young or were raped, um, that the problem, the reason they have these problems is that their selves are screwed up. Right. And that if they could fix them themselves, the, the 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 self, then they wouldn't have these problems. And that's a narrative in which poverty and sexist subordination, violence, um, and their criminalization by the carceral state is their own fault. Right. And I think it's one of the interesting things about your book is that is the because you're doing a comparative study, uh, one of the things that jumped out to me, um, one of the lines that jumped out to me was 
when you said, you know, women at the lodge had to change their lifestyles, but women at WTS had to change their very selves. Well, you know, what, what reflects on the, the sort of racism and, and potential classism of, of that attitude is that that's not the treatment that women are getting universally. It's the treatment that women at the bottom are getting, um, which I thought yes. was really interesting. Oh. It is. Oh, yeah, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to, one of the things you've touched on um, a couple times, which I, I think is so interesting, is around this idea of privacy and the unearthing of trauma and um, the sort of these sort of therapeutic sessions where the women at WTS are encouraged to bear their, you know, bear their souls, bear their their trauma. And I'm I'm just really interested in the idea of, of privacy and how marginalized people, especially in the criminal system, don't have any privacy. Um, and I experienced this even as a as a defense attorney in training where, you know, my job is basically to, to talk to someone about all the terrible things that have happened to them in a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time. And then, obviously with their permission, talk about it in open court. And it sounds like what you're describing from, from the, these treatment programs is that you don't get privacy because if you aren't if you aren't participating in these therapeutic exercises and talking about all all these terrible things that have happened to you, you're not doing the treatment program correctly. And if you don't do the treatment program correctly, you might go to prison. Yes, the fact that prison is hanging over their heads um, is a huge part of why they don't have privacy. Um, I mean, that this this is not the kind of therapy that more privileged people are used to when you can go see a shrink or some kind of counselor. And um, and there actually is a whole legal regime that protects that information as private. These people are forced to go to treatment. And then the information that they provide their counselors is not private. It is absolutely handed over to whoever the penal authorities are over them, whether that's drug court judges or parole officers. Um, and and so and in some ways, everything they say could be used against them. And um, they also have very little power over, you know, to, to say, I'm not going to tell you that. I don't want to talk about this anymore. There was a woman named Denisha um, who got in trouble in the program because they were frustrated that she was not going deep, um, what they called getting gut level, like really digging up those very painful feelings. Um, and so Danisha had come to, uh, WTS because of child protective services. She, um, tested positive for drugs after giving birth. And so her newborn infant was taken away from her and she was required to do treatment if she wanted to retain custody of her. Um, and the program suspected, probably not wrongly, that this was um, a painful issue for her. And she had actually lost custody of um, two children earlier in her life. Um, and I don't know exactly why. I do know that she did time in prison. Um, and if women are in prison for long enough, they will automatically lose custody mm-hmm. of their children. So... Um, so they and so the WTS counselors really wanted Denisha to spend a lot of time like digging up this these issues. She was also in the parenting class with Christine, and so this was one of those instances where they spent class after class after class talking about um, guilt and shame. Um, and Denisha was not really into this aspect of the of the class. You know, some women were, but I think she really felt like. Um, she didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and from the counselor's point of view, this was 
a sign of her addiction because she was in denial, because she wouldn't access her emotions, that she was resistant to treatment because she wouldn't talk about them. And so they um, did what they call a case conference, which is a, a disciplinary mechanism in which a bunch of, of this counselors, like so her vocational counselor and her primary counselor and a bunch of other higher staff members w confronted Denisha. They all sat together in a room with Denisha at like one end of the table and all the staff at the other, um, raising all these problems um, with her performance in the program. Um, and the big one was that she didn't want to get gut level about um, losing custody of her children. Yikes. And, and I'm not a ahead. professional, but... The only times in my life I've ever been confronted by a panel of people across from me it did not make me want to open up more, it, no. you know, which <laughs> yeah, it just sort of reflects, I don't know, the, the, the dual purpose of the program, right? Which is like, you both have to comply with the program and we want, you know, it's therapeutic, but you have to comply with the program in order to get out of the program. Yes. It's like, we're going to punish you until you tell us your pain so that you can heal. Yeah. Many of the staff members who were in that room confronting Denisha, like really care about mm -hmm. trying to heal poor criminalized women. Um, they are not, you know, all raging racists or sexists. Like they're often people who are trying to do good in the world by helping women they know have had hard lives. Um, and, and so it, it is a complicated issue because they're not doing this because they're bad people. Um, but it is embedded in the whole system that they work in that punishment is leveraged to get people to sort of deal with their problems. And it did involve things like, we're going to like harangue you until you tell us about your trauma. Have you, this is a side note, but have you seen the Netflix series Alias Grace or read the book that it's based on? I recently read about it and made a note that I obviously have to see this. You, <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. It is exactly this. It is this like notorious murderess in, I don't know, 1850s Canada who is on death row and a budding, you know, early stage psychiatrist goes, who's a man, goes to treat her. And there is this really interesting, not treat her, goes to probe her experiences in order to write basically a mitigation report for the death penalty. And, um... And there is this incredibly interesting dynamic between sort of his being in a place of privilege and, and feeling sort of entitled to sort of almost possess her through her trauma, through knowing her trauma. It's really, wow. it's really good. <laughs> I mean, I think I, you know, I think WTS is, is actually, you know, part of a bigger phenomenon. So, I mean, I, it's become increasingly common to think about the harms of oppression and marginalization through the language of trauma. Mm -hmm. And I don't deny actually that that kind of like systemic racism and, and years of, of abuse, for instance, or being victims of violence, like that this act is traumatic. There is no doubt, but the, there's a kind of relentless individualization in that language in which, um, mm. unfair social systems get reduced to people's emotions. Um, and I think there, uh, it tends to blot out the social context that makes some people have such hard lives um, and tends to suggest that, that the, the solution to these systems of oppression um, and, un, and, and injustice are to make people feel better and to, to deal with their emotions and the way they defined the women's problems, the way they defined addiction relied on a lot of the racist and sexist stereotypes that we associate with 
the the crack mother, um, for instance, or uh, the welfare queen, and these you know hostile narratives about women, particularly African-American women, that were very much part of mass incarceration and the kind of punitive politics around crime of that era. And can you sort of draw the explicit line between the welfare queen or or crack baby um, stereotypes or uh, stereotypes isn't even the right word, but um, stereotypes and and the type of punishment or type of treatment that's being um, provided at WTS? Yeah, so, um, well, we'll start with the, the, the kind of the welfare queen one. So you mentioned that in, in some ways the program seems surprising because we're so used to welfare programs trying to, to push people into low-wage labor in order to get benefits. So that was welfare reform. Mm-hmm. But another feature of that of the welfare reform, you know, 1990s and, and 80s discourses about poor women and poor mothers was that there was something wrong with them, that their dependency was not, you know, on the state wasn't just a kind of financial arrangement, but was a kind of psychological dependency. And this was related to the idea that, you know, late that they were lazy, that they didn't want to work, that they had kind of had this dependent personality and and so the the kind the the way that they were pathologized wasn't just that they were getting money and when they should be having to work for it but was that they had a behavioral problem and welfare reform in 1996 basically changed welfare in multiple ways but one of the things that it did was increase the assumption that that instead of a sort of redistribution this is a you know a behavior modification mm-hmm. program um and so although their focus was not on pushing women to work. They, WTS did indeed think that the women were pathologically dependent, not just on drugs, but um, on any external sources of meaning or validation, which they thought was dangerous and led women into crime and led women into abusive relationships. And so to them, drug use was just one symptom of a kind of bigger dependency, like that their whole self was so dependent. Um, One of the higher up staffers at WTS once told me that the women there needed habilitation, not rehabilitation, because they didn't even have a self yet. Interesting. And before we leave this, I am just reminded that there was one story in the book wherein I think a woman at WTS basically ended up having an abortion as a result of her being there. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? That's correct. That was actually Christine. So, um, so before she ended up, um, getting a job and then having to quit her job, she also told the parenting class that she had just had an abortion and the staff member who, who, who was the family counselor who, who ran the parenting class very much affirmed Christine's decision was kind of like, yes, this is like, it's totally fine that you feel fine about it. And, um, Christine's argument was that she needed to, you know, she was in treatment. She needed to focus on herself. And that was the program's narrative. That's the kind of thing that the program thought women should be doing. At the same time, she made this sort of offhand remark during the discussion about having an abortion, which was that, uh, Marcus, who was the, uh, director of the residential treatment program, uh, that he had told her that if she kept the pregnancy, she would have to leave WTS and get transferred to another treatment program. 
And so she sort of, you know, she was saying, oh, I need to focus on myself. Plus Marcus told me that I'd have to leave. Right. That I'd get discharged. I don't disbelieve Christine that she wanted to focus on herself. I mean, I, I believe that, but at the same time, there is again, this like incredibly punitive and coercive power, um, over her situation in which she, you know, getting expelled from the program for getting knocked up, you know, would not look good to the judge at the drug court and, um, would raise questions about her commitment to treatment and would cause, you know, there's not many treatment programs that accept pregnant and parenting women. So, Christine would have had to start all over. She would have extended the kind of time she would have had to to spend in treatment. I mean, it could have been a huge problem for her. Right. I think the the interesting thing to me about that about Christine's story is that it is important that you know that that was her choice, and and that it's great that they empowered her to feel the way that she wanted to feel about that. But her set of the the factors going into her choice are different mm-hmm. by virtue of being involved with the system. So what then? Should the response to um, addiction or people suffering from addiction in the criminal system be? Well, one of the arguments I make is that even when punishment is rehabilitative, it's always punitive, uh, that you cannot separate the punitiveness out of it and that you can't separate the stigma that comes with labeling someone as a criminal, even if you also label them an addict at the same time. So I am generally skeptical that the criminal justice system could ever be a good place to do therapy with people, um, whether that's about trauma or substance use. I think it's a poorly suited for that kind of effort. Um, saying that, I realize that uh, treatment alternatives to incarceration are one of the only methods we have now for challenging mass incarceration with within the system. And so I, I have gr- misgivings about about this argument, but I think it's it's what my research showed me um, was and- that treatment treatment as punishment. Treatment as a punishment is different than treatment in, in uh, outside of the criminal legal system, out, outside of the carceral state at a place like Gladstone Lodge. And so um, I, am, I, I would generally suggest that if we want people to get treatment for substance abuse, then we probably should not be expanding the capacity for that in the criminal justice system because it's not actually an alternative to punishing them. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the chance to talk to you. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any suggestions, thoughts, questions, concerns, please feel free to email us at voirdearpodcast at gmail.com. And please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps get the word out and the word is getting out, which is very cool. In the meantime, I want to thank the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, specifically Anna Wyke and Brooke Hopkins, for their help in producing this, and the folks at Pottington Bear for composing our theme music. 